Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. As the presidential election of 1860 approached, the most prominent Republican in the land was clearly New York Senator William Seward, famous for his prediction of an irrepressible conflict between North and South. Most people expected he would easily win his party's nomination for president, but he had some prominent rivals like Salmon Chase, Edward Bates, Supreme Court Justice John McClain. In almost no one's mind was the obscure Illinois lawyer Abraham Lincoln. Well, we all know what happened next, but how did it come about? Ed Acorn explains it in The Lincoln Miracle, Inside the Republican Convention that Changed History. We'll talk with the author tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Coming to you tonight from our usual location on the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University. It's in Greenville, North Carolina, not South Carolina, and there is no West Carolina. There's a Western Carolina University. That's not us. This is ECU, and I do not speak for ECU or for anybody else, nor does my guest. We're all speaking for ourselves tonight, as always, at Civil War Talk Radio. This Past week, I went for a walk. It's not newsworthy. I do that regularly. Uh, but around my neighborhood, I passed a house that has one of these mini libraries in front. I'm sure you've seen them. People put a post with a box of books on top, and you can leave one, take one. And I decided I had a, a copy of uh, a sort of memoir by a, a British soccer player, Peter Crouch. It's very funny reminiscences, but not a book I'm going to read twice. So I, uh, on my last walk, I dropped it off there. But you have to take a book to make room. So I took one out and just started reading it as I was walking. And it turns out there are books 
where the author completely makes up everything that happens. Uh, there's no history in them at all, no facts. They're, they're, they're fiction, they're novels. This was, I guess I knew such things existed. My wife reads them all the time. Uh, but I read a, a mystery novel. It was preposterous, and the, the author writing, it was written 30 years ago, but the author was using slang from the 1940s in her 1990s characters. That was kind of amusing. And I, I half an finished the book before I finished my walk and finished it later that afternoon. Who knew? There's a whole genre of people who just make stuff up and put it between covers. Um, anyway, uh, we, won't, we won't be talking with that author on this show. Uh, I, I've talked to you before about how I don't read historical fiction because the last thing I need to do is add to the confusion in my mind of what I actually know about the past and what somebody else made up. Uh, but no danger in this book. The, uh, the, the murders and so on, not, not real. Uh, in real life, we're, we're doing a chair search here at ECU for the history department. We had our first candidate in this week and had extensive meetings. I had dinner with the candidate one night, breakfast another morning, a committee meeting with the candidate, and then a presentation. Uh, and it's, it's a lot of work, but it's very interesting to find out how people do things at other schools and for them to find out how we do things here. And things we take for granted, they find peculiar and vice versa. Um, but I think it's a healthy experience and, and overall uh, uh, took a long a lot of time the last two days but the, the candidate was absolutely delightful and uh, uh, if, if the next three candidates are the same way we'll have a very difficult choice to make but, uh, but it was good to know uh, so far so good in, in the history chair search I'll keep you informed as that goes along also, we'll keep you informed of who's going to be on the show next, which you can find out by going to www.impedimentsofwar.org, where Mark Gaffney operates the website, and you'll see there next week Gary Gallagher will be back for the, I think, league-leading fifth or sixth appearance. He, he passes Mark Dunkelman by one when he shows up next week. Uh, he has edited a new edition of Bruce Catton's Army of the Potomac Trilogy, a magnificent work I'm sure many of you have read. And if not, uh, you have a treat ahead. So we'll talk with him about that, that new version. And then on the 22nd of February, uh, Rebecca Plant and Francis Clark have a monograph called Of Age, Boy Soldiers and Military Power in the Civil War Era. Uh, March 1st, yet to be determined, still working on that show, and then uh, comes spring break, uh, well-deserved. I will be kicking back with a beverage with a tiny umbrella in it, but not actually going to the beach anywhere. I'm just going to stay here in Greenville. Uh, but I will benefit uh, from your contributions to the, the Civil War beverage, Civil War Talk Radio beverage and Shower Door Fund. Uh, today we had a contractor over to stall a new door on uh, the shower that needed replacement and something went wrong and uh, had to order some new parts and it's sort of halfway in and halfway out and uh, it's going to cost more than it, it initially looked like it would so your non-tax deductible contributions you can make by going to www.impedimentsofwar click on the paypal button make your donation uh, Donate $5 a month, uh, just over a dollar per show. It it's, relieves the conscience for a year, uh, for indefinitely, actually. It just keeps going forever. 
uh, even if you don't have a PayPal account, they they find a way to take the money out of your your person. I don't know how they do it, uh, but feel free to donate uh, to the the formerly named Book and Bourbon Fund, now temporarily the Shower Door Replacement Fund here at Civil War Talk Radio. And you do want the shower door intact. You don't want you've. Uh, you can't even get the image out of your mind if I suggest it, so I'll just move on from there. Um, today, we are talking with uh, Ed Acorn, who is the author of uh, Lincoln, uh, The Lincoln Miracle, Inside the Republican Convention That Changed History. It is uh, a brand new book. I don't think it's even out yet. I've been reading an electronic copy this week. That's why I hesitated a moment because I couldn't just look down in my lap and see the title. I had to scroll back on the screen and make sure I got the words right. Uh, it is about the 1860 Republican Convention, and we will learn more from the author, Ed Acorn, who joins us tonight. Uh, Mr. Acorn, are you there? I am here, Jerry. Thanks for having me. Well, welcome. Glad to have you on the show. Uh, I, I said I was astonished to find that there are books that people completely make up, uh, which I guess they do it because they're very readable. They're, they're easy to turn the page one after another. But you've written a page turner. This book, I well, the, a, a screen flipper, I should say, because I read it electronically, but I scrolled page after page, and it was like cotton candy uh, in, in the ease of consumption. Uh, Thank you. I, I tried to make it that way. Um. You, I try to write in a way where you don't know, even if you know what's coming next, you're surprised and anxious to see what happens next. Yeah, I mean, spoiler alert, listeners, Lincoln does get nominated in 1860. <laughs> uh, but yes, reading the book, it, 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 you do create the suspense of exactly how does this come about, because it does seem so unlikely. But let me backtrack a bit. Um, uh, is writing now your 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 full time day job? Uh, the dust jacket says you're in journalism as well. Well, I was in uh, journalism for forty one years, and now I'm uh, writing history full time. So that's a uh, nice trade. Very nice. Yes. So in in terms of writing, is well, I say it reads like a novel. It is serious history. It, it's uh, obviously uh, researched. And let me start with a technical question about the book. The, the scholarly apparatus that you apply, uh, a lot of books uh, published by university presses will have endnotes or footnotes. You do cite your sources for every quotation, but you use a format where they just appear in the back of the book with the page number and a snippet of the quote to identify it, rather than putting numbers on the page. Is that... Was that your decision, or is that a publisher's decision? That was my decision. I th I thought it would read smoother and and easier without being constantly interrupted by footnotes. I know people in academia like to immediately uh, grab onto the sources. In fact, I do too mm -hmm. when I'm reading books. But uh, writing this book, I wanted it to read just smoothly. Um, I suppose this is my background in journalism. I just want to tell the story and have all the uh, supporting material in the back of the book. Uh, I mean, David Donald did that in his, his biography, his magisterial biography of Lincoln from 97, yes. I think. He used that same format, and other writers have used it. Uh, 
and you tend to see it more when books published by trade presses, but it does, as you say, it does get the, the, the distraction of the numbers out of the way. But for those of us who want to be assured, you're not making stuff up. Uh, right. The sources are all there. So let me ask another question. What, what drew you to Lincoln in the first place? As you've written two books now about Lincoln. Yes. Um, I just have loved Lincoln my whole life. Um, and I've admired him, and I've uh, tried to study all the criticism of him, and I just think this guy shines through as somebody with tremendous moral courage, and I really credit him with saving this country. Um, and that's why I think it's uh, such a miracle that he was produced by this convention. I mean, that's the whole story is, uh, this guy went in, and there was no no guarantee he was going to be the nominee. We we tend to can I ramble here a bit? Absolutely, we have we, an hour. We, we yeah. tend to, uh, as human beings, when we know the end of the story, we psychologically think it's sort of inevitable, but mm -hmm. it's really not inevitable, and that's why I like I I write in a kind of form of micro history like my last book about lincoln was just 24 hours in his life and i try to tell the end of the civil war through those mm -hmm. 24 hours and this one is just a week in chicago mm -hmm. and when you go down from 30,000 the perspective of 30,000 feet up and go right down to the ground i think these people come to life as human beings and you realize um what a fluke it was almost that Lincoln was nominated. These the, the delegates in the convention had no I no idea really of his strengths, his his uh, really um, incredible uh, political sense, his his brilliance with the English language, his steely will. They had no idea of the stuff, and this is what made all all the difference in uh, saving this country. It is interesting, that the point that, that it was, you say a fluke, it was certainly unexpected uh, by many people and, and not at all a, a, an obvious or predictable result. And that's a debate some historians are having. We're seeing more uh, support for this argument in favor of, of contingency, of uh, uh, things happening not because of overwhelming systems that determine results that leave no choice but but the for want of a nail argument in terms of a military event that, that if this one little thing hadn't happened the right. whole whole result could have been different and, and we'll talk about that specifically in the context of the uh the convention in a moment let me ask sure. you uh, 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 another question though about something you just said that in terms of your admiration for lincoln and i think it's something a lot of listeners share i certainly do as well uh the there's, uh, I think John Meacham also has a book about Lincoln that just came out. Uh, also, you're showing him, and I, I'm just talking from reviews, I've not read it yet. Um, but presenting Lincoln as, as an example of, of what can be best in American politics. And I wonder if, if how much present needs are. are pushing authors to, to look for someone like Lincoln uh, to fill a void we might feel in contemporary politics. 
Well, I hope I hope it's pushing them, and I hope it's pushing readers to look at this man and and understand why he was so important and what kind of courage he showed. So I I think uh, in any time in any society this this kind of strength is needed but i think mm-hmm. it's uh, even more pressingly needed today and around the time of the civil war than mm-hmm. in uh, less contentious periods yeah and, and certainly people are drawing those parallels so the the point is made uh, really from the title and from what you just said that, that this is an unexpected result a miraculous result one could say uh, I, I said in the introduction, Seward was the one everyone expected to win. Why was Seward uh, so so much seen as the front runner? He was really the the superstar of the Republican Party. He had um, he had a very high profile. He was a New York a senator from New York, U.S. senator. He was the former governor of New York. He had an incredible machine behind him headed by a man named Thurlow Weed, a newspaper editor who had become uh, sort of a political manager in Albany, New York. And he, Seward was regarded as sort of the voice of conscience of the Republican Party. He was beloved by the base of the party. He was somebody uh, who had... Um, prepared himself for the presidency. He had gone on a trip to Europe shortly before the convention, sort of at the end of uh, 1859, and he had met with Queen Victoria and the Pope and uh, Emperor Napoleon, and uh, he was very much being groomed to be the next president of the United States. Mm. And... uh, he, it, it, the irony is if, if we had our modern system of um, primaries, I think he would have uh, swept to victory because he had the money and he had the institutional support. That brings up the fact that the election is very different then. So what we'll do is we'll take a short break and we come back and I want to ask you about conventions and, and why the 1860 convention mattered and how it differed from, from the ones we have today. We'll ask that question when we return. We're talking tonight with Ed Acorn, author of The Lincoln Miracle, the uh, inside the Republican convention that changed history. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device. 
including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Ed Acorn. He's the author of The Lincoln Miracle, Inside the Republican Convention that Changed History, which is, of course, about the 1860 Republican Convention that nominated Lincoln for president for the first time. So, Ed, if, if you worked in journalism 40 years, uh, you and I and many listeners are old enough to remember when we watched political conventions, national conventions, with great interest to see how the balloting would go and so on. Um, young listeners, if there are indeed any uh, to this show, you know, don't care about political conventions. It just shows the, the, the decisions already made by the primary elections. Uh, can you explain how conventions worked in, in 1860, why it mattered so much? Right. In, in 1860, we didn't have a system of uh, primary elections. So the, the leading um, political people in the party, minus the candidates um, mm-hmm. who were not at the conventions, uh, met met to decide who the nominee would be and what the platform of the party would be. So this was a gathering from around the country of pretty much um, professional political types. And uh, the thing that really struck me researching this book is these people were not interested in any real way in what kind of president they were choosing. I mean, they were, their primary interest was which person at the top of the ticket would get the most people elected and create the most jobs. And that was effectively the kind of calculation that gave us one of our greatest presidents, if not the greatest. So electability is the key here. That's right. Uh, now, it matters in particular in 1860. The, the Republicans, of course, are a brand new party. They just ran a candidate for the first time in 1856. Uh, but they go into this convention convinced they have a really good chance in November. Uh, uh, what's going on with the Democrats at this point? Yeah, the Democrats had... Uh, had their convention in, in, in Charleston, and they had actually split in half. <laughs> Southern delegates had stormed out of the convention in a fight over the platform, and uh, effectively they were unable to elect, um, they were unable to nominate a candidate 
in Charleston, so they just uh, postponed the convention till later in the year. Now, this this uh, this signa signified that the the northern and southern branches of the Democratic Party were just finally had reached the point where they couldn't couldn't agree any longer because they couldn't get elected if they agreed with each other. Mm. Um, so it was very a very dire situation for the Democratic Party. So when the Republicans gathered in Chicago in May 1860, um, it was there was a very strong probability everybody understood that whoever they nominated could be the next president of the United States. So what was Chicago like when they met there? Oh, Chicago was uh, this incredible boom town. Uh, only 30 years earlier, it had been a bunch of cabins along a swamp, you know, near the mm -hmm. Chicago River. And it had exploded. It had become this dynamic center of transportation and um, uh, meat processing and uh, gathering of farm farm goods. Um, it had just become this incredible booming city. And it was, uh, I write in the book uh, about some of the aspects of a city growing up that fast. I mean, there were horrible health problems. There was, mm. they didn't have uh, proper sewage, so they had to, and they didn't have enough uh, dirt uh, underneath the, the city before you hit water. So they had to actually lift the whole city so they could put down sewer pipes. So during the 1860 convention, there were some buildings that had been lifted, some that had not, and you had sidewalks going up and down. And uh, mm. it was a very dangerous uh, situation for drunks walking around at night, which uh, many of the delegates were. So, uh, and they, uh, the Chicago Republicans uh, decided to build a new hall to accommodate this convention. Um, uh. they, they were going to meet in a smaller building, but they decided, look, we're Chicago. We want to present this image to the world of uh, our tremendous growth and our ability to get things done. So in six weeks, they built this huge auditorium out of wood um, called the Wigwam. And uh, you could stuff like 11,000 people in there. There were no... Um, no microphones, no amplification. So essentially, um, they they designed the hall with this curving roof, so the speakers could be heard in all sides of the hall, if you can believe that. Hmm. And uh, but this thing was made of wood. The ladies of Chicago decorated it with bunting and with evergreens. And as uh, Bruce Catton, who you mentioned earlier, is one of my heroes, yeah. he said that. Altogether, it must have been one of the greatest fire traps ever built in America. Because you can imagine gas lights flaring in this sort of unfinished wood with <laughs> with evergreens uh, all over the place. And, and they they all would have roasted alive if the, if that had ever happened. But but it was uh, it was considered as quite a quite a feather in the cap of Chicago to build this thing that fast. Uh, just jumping to. Uh, had uh, that is what happened to the wigwam eventually, isn't it? Yes, yes, it it, it had a terrible fire and burned burned to the ground, uh, and that's well after the Civil War, though. Yeah, yeah. So, it, I lived in Chicago for several years 
enjoyed thoroughly. And I'm trying to picture where the wigwam was. I is, is there a marker there even today? Is there, there is any? a marker, yeah. yeah. Where, where is um, it? Do you know? What's the street? Wacker Street, is that it now? It, it was there, a, a different, yeah, different there, name. It's, it's basically where the um, Chicago River takes a turn and it branches off in two directions. And that's okay. that's where it was, right there on the left, sort of. Okay. Um, and, uh, and, of course, the Chicago River at the time was this stinking <laughs> uh, river f full of animal carcasses and, and chemical waste. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it was terrible. But, you know, people just getting ahead and get, surviving in those days was the key interest of the people so they just put up with it so you've got this absolutely raw city that has sprung up out of the prairie and yep. now you've got this raw building that they've built in a matter of weeks and they're packing with people i think you said at one point that it was the largest crowd under a roof anywhere in american history up to that point up to that point yes and that is uh, so re really this is a an example of, of young America, to use a, a Douglas Democratic term of the time, uh, coming together. So they're in the wigwam. Um, you, you mentioned political people coming to this convention. Each state sends a delegation, which presumably is elected or appointed, however each state right. wants to send them. But they do have, among them, there are people who, who have particular agendas and uh, uh, like you mentioned already, Thurlow Weed, uh, who is Seward's right-hand man, is that fair to say? That's right, yeah. And he had spent his, he had spent decades planning to put Seward in this position. He wouldn't let him run in 1856, you mentioned that campaign, mm -hmm. because the party was too new and he, it would go down to defeat. And he wanted to save Seward for 1860 when the party was stronger. It was a very wise and clever thing to do, he, but he didn't, didn't realize what would happen in 1860. Uh, and these were political professionals from, from all over the country. They were uh, people who really knew how to get votes, and they were there on a very serious purpose to get elect a candidate, nominate a candidate who could get them the most votes. Now, one of the other characters who gets a lot of uh, space in this book is Horace Greeley, uh, another New York journalist, who is, is sort of the, the foil for Weed and Seward. He's there in Chicago for the express purpose of stopping Seward from getting the nomination. Right. Uh, Horace Greeley, to the extent we know him at all today, was famous for saying, go west, young man. Right. Although we don't know he exactly used those words, but he certainly expressed that sentiment. But mm -hmm. he, was the, he was the editor of, I think, the most influential newspaper in the country at the time, the New York Trib Tribune. Mm -hmm. And he had been very close to Seward and Weed over the years. Um, but he was also ambitious politically. And they had blocked him from becoming lieutenant governor of New York. They actually let the editor of a rival paper, the New York Times, uh, Henry Raymond, get that job. So Greeley was, was deeply wounded by this. 
he sent a letter to Seward breaking off their uh, their business arrangement, so to speak. And he uh, he came to Chicago dead set against letting Seward get the nomination. And Greeley was so um, he had an influence with the <laughs> delegates mm-hmm. that was very strong because he had been, here he had been advancing the Republican cause in his newspaper for years, and he had spoken out very strongly against slavery. And they said, oh, boy, if he's saying Seward has no chance, uh, here he is, a friend of Seward, and here he is, he's been advancing our cause all these years. Uh, We'd better listen to him. And that did enormous damage to Seward. One of the other things that that you mentioned that didn't help Seward was that because he was a front runner, he, he has thousands of supporters who come to Chicago, but a lot of them coming from New York City, you know, stay at the best hotel in Chicago, and you describe how Greeley is, is, is going around getting votes, and, and certainly Lincoln's uh, friends, like David Davis, we'll talk about him in a moment, uh, are, are absolutely spending every molecule of energy trying to get votes for their man. The Seward guys are like, you know, we've got this wrapped up. They're, they don't seem to be working as hard. And I, to share a memory, when I was a lawyer in Chicago, this is 40 years ago, uh, I recall going to district court once, federal court, and there was a, a party being represented by a group of New York lawyers, and there was almost as if there were a bubble around these these people. Their, their suits <laughs> were different. They, the way they carried themselves, they, they seemed to be exuding an attitude of, here we are in the Wild West among... Uh, prairie and Indians. Uh, I, I was wearing a decent suit, and I felt like I was in, in wearing, you know, a buckskin. Uh, <laughs> but the attitude that they they didn't say anything, just just their briefcases, their shoes, everything just suggested we're from New York. We can't wait to get back on the plane and brush this prairie dust off ourselves. And if I felt that way about these guys, I was. That's what I was thinking when I was reading your description of the Seward men in Chicago. That they're yes. just. Too good for the West. Well, they they dressed better. They were very arrogant. Who, who can imagine an arrogant New Yorker? And they <laughs> uh, and they, um, you know, the the this uh, bit in the book where uh, the Lincoln people are talking about we showed up in our Sunday best clothes, almost mm-hmm. exactly like what you're saying. And right. uh, the Seward men all had were better, much better dressed. They had all the money to. Uh, we'd had the money to to ply all the delegates with champagne and fine cigars and all that. The Lincoln people didn't have that kind of money. But, I mean, to be fair to Weed, he he worked very hard, um, mm-hmm. and he he, tried, <laughs> he gave it his all, and he, he spent a lot of money uh, shipping, you know, thousands of New Yorkers out, out to uh, Chicago so they could march in the street and create this impression that Seward was just unstoppable. So it's very interesting strands uh, coming to play in this thing. And of course, the the Republican National Committee had chosen Chicago in part because uh, they thought, well, no serious candidate is from Illinois. Right. And... uh, so that would be sort of a level playing field, fair ground. You know, nobody would have home field advantage. 
and as it turned out, the the Lincoln supporters uh, thronged Chicago and sort of uh, negated that whole uh, weed effort to make uh, Seward seem just unstoppable. Now, the leader of the Lincoln forces in Chicago, you described as Judge David Davis. Uh, who who was Davis? Well, as we may remember knowing the Lincoln story, Lincoln would spend six months a year traveling around the 8th uh, District Circuit um, uh, to the various little courthouses scattered throughout the district. And the judge was uh, this man, David Davis. He was 300 pounds. He had a very uh, firm uh, approach to life. He was... uh, a great personality. I, just, mm-hmm. I uh, enjoy him in the book quite a lot. And he came to know Lincoln, uh, traveling six months a year with him. Lincoln, unlike other, a lot of the lawyers on the circuit, would go home on weekends. I think Lincoln had such an unhappy home life that he pretty much stayed out on the circuit the whole time they were out. And uh, so those two got to know each other very well. And Davis became a very loyal supporter of him. He um, he championed him in 1858 in his Senate campaign against Stephen Douglas. And uh, but he, 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 I point out how disorganized the Lincoln forces were because when Douglas arrives in Chicago, and this is sort of the start of the book, mm-hmm. he shows up and he discovers nobody has even booked rooms for their headquarters, which is like. In the conventions of those days, if you didn't have a headquarters, you, you didn't have a chance in hell mm-hmm. to get the nomination. So he had to come in and uh, book, uh, throw some people out with the help of the hotel owner and uh, get some rooms. And he, he took over at that point as manager of his, the Lincoln campaign. Nobody appointed him or anything. He just, this is his personality. He took charge and said, we're going to get this done. Well, he, he, we know the result was certainly successful. Um, we'll take another short break. We'll come back and talk about what, what the strategy was, what brought Lincoln to success in the 1860 convention. That is the topic of the book we're talking about tonight, which is called The Lincoln Miracle, Inside the Republican Convention that Changed History. The author is Ed Acorn. He's our guest tonight. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. 
Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Ed Acorn, author of The Lincoln Miracle, Inside the Republican Convention that Changed History. So, Ed, you've got all these delegates in Chicago, many of them, there's there's some 400 delegates there uh, plus, and uh, a fair number are, are pledged to vote for William Seward on the first ballot. But there's a lot of uh, rivals, Simon Cameron of Pennsylvania, Sam and Chase of Ohio, and so on. And they, they will get the votes of their own states, at least on the first ballot. Is it fair to say that Davis's strategy for Lincoln was to make him everybody's second favorite? That's that's exactly the strategy that Lincoln devised and Davis uh, carried out. Mm. Um, offend nobody. Don't don't uh, criticize any of the candidates. Uh, mm. Just plant the seed that uh, Lincoln would be a very electable candidate if they they nominated him. And of course, Davis and his team did this brilliantly. I mean, going into the, it's, I really have to stress what a long shot Lincoln was. Two years earlier, he had said, just think of such a sucker as me as president. Mm -hmm. And he laughed at the whole idea, but Mary Lincoln, his wife believed in him. And, uh, and uh, so they get there in Chicago and pretty much Lincoln's considered possibly as a VP candidate because uh, Illinois is an important swing state. But they discover on the ground that things aren't as solid for Seward as, as was thought. For one thing, uh, this, this sort of hovers over the, the whole convention like a ghost, but J- John Brown's raid uh, uh, on, the, uh, on Harper's Ferry had really terrified the, the South and infuriated the South. And it, it made people in the North worry, too, about all this talk about slavery they you know we we often hear people complaining about all oh, this political rhetoric well that was the case in 1860 people increasingly thought all this slavery talk is going to end up dividing this country splitting this country and creating a terrible civil war so they thought seward is the most outspoken famous opponent of slavery if they put him up it would scare off moderate voters. So that was sort of the seed planted uh, in the background there. And and actually, although Lincoln had said, had spoken out just as strongly against slavery and had said things 
as dramatic as Seward, mm -hmm. um, he was not as famous, so he was not considered as uh, risky a candidate as Seward for that reason. Now, the, the chief moderate candidate and the one that Horace Greeley was backing was uh, Edward Bates from Missouri. He's a judge from Missouri. Mm -hmm. And they he was a very conservative guy who hated all this talk about slavery, um, even though he had owned slaves and freed them. Um, but he he didn't like to, uh, the, the sort of gung-ho nature of the Republican Party in opposing slavery. So he was considered, okay, here's somebody who might attract swing voters, and, and maybe we should go with him. And, and Greeley had spent weeks, if not months, promoting him on the pages of the, the Tribune. But mm -hmm. the problem with Bates is that he was associated with the Know Nothing Party, which is the uh, people who very strongly questioned immigration and thought it was turning America into something that it wasn't originally. And uh, so he had flirted with the Know Nothing Party, and um, as a result, German Americans and other immigrants were dead set against him. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the Germans, I write about this in the book, the Germans held their own convention that week just down the road from the Republican convention and made it very clear they wouldn't stand for Bates. And the, the German-Americans were a very small percentage of Republican voters, but they were enough to make the difference in some of these very hotly contested states. So the delegates didn't dare to go with him. So this is all, all the stuff was slotting together perfectly it's for Lincoln. Moving toward Lincoln. Yeah. Now, in one of the, you, you describe how the night before the balloting, there's all this, again, wheeling and dealing, horse trading going on, um, and the the Lincoln forces get a telegram from their man, and as you say, the candidates aren't, aren't in town, they're not supposed to be in town, uh, and Lincoln tele telegraphs them, make no contracts that will bind me. In other words, don't offer any uh, patronage jobs, don't offer any any you know, political favors to get me elected. Uh, did did his did Davis and Judd and the <laughs> others listen to that? Yeah, Lincoln didn't want to be seen as somebody who was uh, as scurrilous as other politicians and trading um, public offices, including uh, very lucrative ones, for political support. So the he sent up a, as you say he sent up a message to the Lincoln forces in Chicago to make no no agreements um, in my name and uh, Davis took a look at that said Lincoln ain't here and he <laughs> set it aside and this is why I mean Davis was absolutely critical to Lincoln being nominated president. Before that happened, um, on Thursday, on Thursday um, at the convention, there were a series of test votes, and Seward won all of them. He was in a very strong position, and they had had a lengthy debate about the, the Declaration of Independence, believe it or not, um, mm -hmm. and that pushed the, the convention into the dinner hour when, by the time the, the balloting was to begin for nominating a president. 
And if the balloting had taken place then, it's pretty sure most people think Seward would have won. But what happened was um, the, the guy at the podium didn't have the tally sheets yet available. They had been printed, but they hadn't been brought up to the, uh, to the podium yet. And it would take five minutes to bring it up to the podium. And the delegates were all hungry, and they thought it doesn't make any difference. So they, they adjourned for the evening at that point. I mean, this, these are the, I say this is the slender thread on which the fate of the nation uh, dangles. I mean, it's incredible. that So they, they, they adjourned for the evening, and it was that night that Davis made his um, deals with some fairly, fairly disreputable characters. Um, including Simon Cameron, who, who became, uh, Lincoln was uh, pretty much forced to put on the cabinet as his war secretary. Uh, they had promised him the treasury, treasurer's uh, job, the treasury job, but uh, fortunately Lincoln didn't go with that. He put Chase in that job instead. Yes. But, but anyways, they made these deals, uh, particularly with, um, with Pennsylvania and uh, Indiana. Right. Those were two important states to have on his side. And that, that, uh, that made all the difference. The other thing they did, and this is a famous, but it's very funny. Mm -hmm. They, the Lincoln people, uh, apparently printed up counterfeit tickets and forged them overnight. So, uh, for admission to the wigwam. So the Seward people were, went out the next morning very confident they were going to be, their guy was going to be nominated. And they marched in the streets with their big bands and it created a great stir out on the streets. And then they showed up at the wigwam and they found out their seats had been taken by Lincoln men who had uh, gotten in with these tickets. So uh, that sort of even, <laughs> even the playing field inside. So when they screamed for the candidates, Lincoln's people were as loud as the Seward people. And that made a lot of people think, oh, it's Lincoln's very much in this with Seward. And uh, so it's this, you know, we we look at Honest Abe, but here he is, tra uh, he got nominated by trading offices and, uh, and using counterfeit uh, tickets. So well, it's, 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 yeah, David said Lincoln ain't here, we'll do what we have to do. <laughs> I, there was another uh, tactical maneuver you described how uh, the, the delegates were all seated on the stage, which is huge, occupies half the floor of the building. Yes. And because home field advantage, I think you said it was Norman Judd was the, the seating arrangement guy. <laughs> and he arranges to put all the New Yorkers on one side and all the swing votes over on the other side. Yes. which they can't get to because the speaker's stand is in between them. So anytime there's lobbying going on, the New York guys, they just talk to each other. They've already got their man. But all the Illinois guys who are working for Lincoln can go talk to Indiana and Pennsylvania and Ohio and try to persuade them. Uh, just, just little maneuvers like that that, that, that don't show up. Uh, yeah. Brilliant. It, it is brilliant. They the, the Lincoln people pulled every... Every sort of trick in the book, and poor, uh, poor Weed and Seward were out in the cold on that one. Now, the the balloting itself you describe in, in a chapter it's very dramatic and, and it really 
if it gives you the feeling of watching this happen and uh listeners you have to buy the book to read that part we're going to skip right <laughs> over that um that, that it, it's it's worth the price of admission but uh we know the result uh on the third ballot lincoln does win the nomination uh, i was interested to learn that that uh, there was a movement among a lot of Republicans to have Lincoln come up now and accept the nomination, but Davis and his people wrote down to Lincoln, who's down in Springfield, said, don't come up here no matter what. Why didn't they want him to come up and, and do a victory lap? Yeah, I, it's kind of comical. I discovered about 13 telegrams in the Lincoln <laughs> papers saying, don't come up, whatever you do, don't come up, don't, don't, don't. <laughs> I think they were afraid... Uh, well, for one thing, the, this was not a unified party, really, mm -hmm. at the end of the convention. The Seward people were just oh, they were outraged, yeah. and they thought they had been robbed. And if Lincoln came up and sort of rubbed salt in the wounds, I don't think that would work well. I think Davis was also afraid that Lincoln would hear he had traded offices, <laughs> and, uh <-huh. laughs> and that would come out, and that would create a great stir. So he, he Lincoln wisely just stayed at home and let the uh, let the mountain come to Muhammad. He he uh, the the delegates, the chairman of the different states, uh, came to uh, Springfield the day after the convention and and formally told Lincoln he had been nominated. Although of course he knew because of the telegraph wires. Mm -hmm. oh, that that's another great set piece moment um, when the. Uh, when the delegation arrives uh, in in the the old film Abraham Lincoln with Walter Houston, uh, there there's a version of that scene where the delegation arrives and Lincoln acts all surprised. What me? To be <laughs> uh, and as you say, of course he he knew what they were there for. Uh, but but it is a, a great scene because you describe the the very very favorable impression because they don't know him. They all these right. You know, they don't know who he is. They so, just know he's this joke teller, uh, and right. he's uh, he's a good man, but they don't know how intelligent and how savvy he's going to be. Let me ask you one last question. We just have a minute left. Uh, what I call the Civil War time machine. If you could go back in time to this era, to the convention for 30 minutes, and talk to any one person, not Abraham Lincoln, he's not there, uh, but someone at the convention, who would you most want to spend 30 minutes with? Oh, I'd love to be with David Davis, the uh, guy who made this happen. I mean, he's he's tr a tremendous guy. He's so um, determined, and he's he funny, and he's he just won't back down, and he keeps going. And, and, and what what happens to Davis after the convention? Well, actually. Uh, Lincoln was guilted into putting him on the Supreme Court. His, uh, he didn't want to put too many Illinois people into these powerful positions, but mm -hmm. Leonard Sweat and other people who had been at the convention said, you've got to do this. You wouldn't be in the White House without this man. And, and Lincoln conceded that is true. Wow. And Davis actually became a very good uh, Supreme Court justice. He actually uh, handed down a, a uh, an opinion against Lincoln <laughs> mm. in uh, 1865, uh, a famous case where he said civilians have to be trial tried in civilian courts. That's right. Uh, so, 
Well, it, there's there's a lot. You tell the story of everyone else in the book, the the other main characters, what happens to them. There's a lot more to it. Listeners, uh, it is a page turner. Uh, even though you know how it ends, uh, it, it it's worth the read. It's called The Lincoln Miracle, Inside the Republican Convention That Changed History. It's written by Ed Acorn, who's been with us tonight. Ed, thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you, Jerry. Uh, it's been my pleasure. And listeners, as always... Thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.